Um, good morning. Yeah, I'm Jake. Um, Jake Reefer. I'm the youth director here. If you don't know me, um, it's good to be here. Um, this morning we have arrived at what's probably my favorite or possibly my favorite passage in the book of Acts, um, Acts 6 and 7. And it is the story of the election, persecution, and murder of the Apostle Stephen, the first martyr in the church. And up until this point, we have seen um, Jesus ascend after his resurrection. We've seen the Spirit descend, and we've seen that Spirit start to move out into the world through people, um, healing, forgiving, setting the world right. That's this, this whole book is about the movement of God's Spirit into the world. And just as we would expect in any movement that starts flipping things on its head, there's a lot of people who are unhappy with what's happening and what the Spirit's doing. And last week we saw the first real legal persecution of the apostles in chapter 5. We actually saw them locked up on trumped-up charges, and they were beaten for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. And uh, along the way, something has been, there's been a theme in each chapter of the book so far that we have not necessarily been pulling as a part of this sermon series, but which I think is important for our passage today. So a couple passages from the last few chapters that I want to highlight, starting in Acts 2.23, This is Peter preaching at Pentecost. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then the same speech later in verse 36, chapter 2, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then in chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, again, Peter is speaking in the temple. He says, but you denied the Holy Spirit and the righteous one and asked for a murder, uh, a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. It's a rough one. Uh, Acts chapter 4 and verse 10, Peter again in front of the council, he says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified... And then in chapter 5 from last week, Peter and the apostles together say, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And then finally, what we'll read as a part of today is Stephen at the end of his speech saying, And they killed those, referring to the prophets, who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. This is a theme. This is something that has been bothering the disciples over the course of, of their ministry is this question how did God's people kill God's son how did the people of God kill the son of God how did this happen the one group of people in the world who had been told that there would be a Messiah that there would be someone who would come and set all things right wait for him watch for him these are the signs of his coming watch for him when he shows up half of them think this guy's a threat to everything we believe in we have to kill him How does that happen? How do the people of God kill the Son of God? And where we're going to go this morning is that God's people killed God's Son because they were not actually God's people. They were God people. I'm being kind of cheeky there, but I'll say it again because it has to do with where we're going. They were not God's people. They were God people. In other words, they weren't concerned with God himself. They were concerned with the things around God. They were drawn into the things around Judaism, around Yahweh, but they were not drawn to him himself. And they, they had made an idol out of their faith. And so, the answer to idolatry is always eyes and ears. 
specifically here, we're going to look at the eyes, that, that we need eyes to see the idols of God, we need eyes to see the movement of God, and we need eyes to see the beauty of God. Let me pray before I jump into some scripture and get going. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this story of us. Um, it's really the story of your spirit working through us, God, but it is in many ways a mirror being held up to us about how we um, interact with your word and interact with you. So God, I pray that you would convict us, but that you would also move in us. Um, and we thank you for your word. I pray that anything true that is said here this morning would stick and whatever is not would be quickly forgotten. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So there's going to be a lot of scripture this morning. Um, I don't apologize for that, but um, just get ready. Um, so we're starting in Acts 6 and verse 8. Uh, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered up to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like that of an angel." And I'm going to skip about half of chapter 7, and basically Stephen starts recounting the history of Israel before the council, and he's picking particular parts and, you know, leaving a lot out. But um, I'm going to skip ahead to verse 35, where he's talking about Moses. So picking up in 735, it says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us from the land of Egypt, we don't know what, happens, what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. And our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. 
Yet the Most High does not dwell in in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all of these things? It's the longest bout of scripture I'll read this morning. Um, Thanks for hanging in. Uh, One of the things that we need to realize off the bat is that the people Stephen is speaking to, this will contextualize our whole understanding of what's happening here, is that Stephen is not being persecuted by pagans. He's not being persecuted by atheists. He has not been dragged in front of the council um, by some people who don't believe in the same God as him. He is being persecuted by people who claim the same God that he does. People who worship Yahweh. And this needs to contextualize everything that we're about to discuss, but it should also chill us a little bit. Because at some level, this text is pointing out that just because you worship Yahweh does not mean that you are not persecuting him or persecuting his followers. Just because you claim the name of Yahweh does not mean that you have become blind and that you are in turn persecuting him and his church. And so Stephen understands this, and he structured his speech around the idea that the Jews are upset because they have made an idol out of worshiping God. And so a quick word on idols. Most of us think when we, when we hear idols, we think of the little golden statues um, that people worship. Those are absolutely idols. But I think most of us also know that you can make an idol out of anything. It doesn't have to be a golden statue. Anything can be an idol. Anything that you elevate to the highest priority in your life. If you elevate anything to the place where everything in your life has to orbit around it, where everything in your life bends to serve something, if you elevate anything to the point that that everything must bow down to that thing in your life, then it has become an idol. And some of the best things in the world become idols. Actually, the most deceiving idols are the things that we value the most, good things. Family is a huge idol. If everything in your life bows down to family, if everything must serve your family, if all of your money and your time goes to serving family, it may be an idol. If everything is in service to that, it may have been elevated to a point in life, a good thing elevated to a point in life that it was never made to fulfill And so it's become an idol. And we do this with all kinds of things. Family, relationships, um, service, um, food, anything can become an idol. Um, And if that's true, if anything can become an idol, faith can become an idol. Religion can become an idol. Stephen is accusing the Jews of doing that. He's accusing them of making faith an idol. There's four elements. If you were a Jew in the first century A.D., Four elements that were part of your identity as a Jewish person that would have been super crucial. The first one would have been the Torah, the law, uh, given to them by God through Moses. The other would have been the land, particularly Jerusalem, the promised land that they were given. The third would be their ethnic identity of being Jewish, being descended from Jews, circumcision. All of that would have been a massive part of being Jewish. And the fourth and the most important part would have been the temple, The temple was crucial to their understanding of what it meant to be Jewish. The temple was where God met with the Jews, where he was with them, where his presence dwelt. It was also where the forgiveness of sins happened. And it's so crucial to the the Jews' understanding of what it means to be Jewish that when the first and second temple are destroyed, there's major theological crises in Judaism. They don't know what to do. They're like, how do we worship God if we don't have the temple? how, How can we relate to him? Um, This is the third temple that's in existence during this story. And so Stephen is saying two things to the Jews. On one level, he's saying, you have always preferred idols. 
even in the moment, the greatest moment of your history, when God brought you out of Egypt, brought you out of slavery, and brought you to Mount Sinai and gave you the law, at that moment, which should have been a great moment in your history, you said, we don't know what's happened to Moses. He's been gone for a couple weeks. Let's make a calf and worship that. He said, you've always loved idols more. Idols are easier. They're easier. You can control them. You can understand them. He's saying, you've always preferred idols through your whole history. And on the second thing he's saying is that you've made an idol out of the temple. You've made an idol out of the temple of God. He quotes Isaiah, and he's basically saying, you think that God only dwells in temples? You think you need the temple to have a relationship with God? You think that, this is, that God is contained here? Think again. The whole world is God's temple. How can he be controlled? He'll be wherever he wants to be. If you think that he needs the temple, your idolatry has made you blind. Um, and again, we should be chilled by this a little bit as religious people, as people of faith, of people who go to churches. Have we made an idol out of faith, out of religion? In a way, and just on a practical note before I move on, one possible way of trying to help yourself sniff out some of these religious idols is on the way home today, maybe with the person you came with, ask, ask each other, how have you grown or matured as a Christian over the last year? And pay attention to the answer and what you appeal to. Because do you point to your improved church attendance, your better quiet times, your more frequent quiet times, your improved tithing, your increased involvement, your service? Do you point to stuff like that? It's like, I've really grown as a Christian because of these things I've done. Or would you say, I love Jesus more now than I did a year ago? He's more precious to me than he was a year ago. And maybe some of these things helped me get there, but ultimately, I love Jesus more. So do you have the eyes to see the idols of religion and faith in your life? Or are we blind to idols like our non-Christian friends? Are we completely unobservant of the things around us? So we have to have the eyes to see the idols of God, but we also have to have the eyes to see the movement of God. Let me pick up in verse 51 of chapter 7. And this is the climax of Stephen's speech, and it's a zinger. He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Prophets in Israel were a good, simple definition of a prophet was a mouthpiece. Um, They were the ones through whom God spoke his word. Originally, God really just wanted to speak directly to the people, but it says they were too scared. They were too scared of the presence of God, and so he gives them a prophet, and he speaks through the prophet. And um, the Old Testament is littered with them. Prophets are always popping up. And prophets were really unpopular because they would often show up and say, hey, you're sinning, and God's not happy with that. And here is what is going to happen if you don't repent. Here's what will happen if you do repent. And so often they were really unpopular people. Like the prophet comes around the corner, you're like, okay, let's let's move along. Um, And while there are instances in Israel's history where people listen to the prophets, like David does listen to the prophet Nathan when he says, you've committed adultery. Um, David listens and repents, or Hezekiah repents when Isaiah comes to him. Um, There are those moments, more often than not in Israel's history, when a prophet shows up, they reject them, 
they ignore them, they mock them, or they kill them. And we have to ask, why? Why is that a thing in Israel's history? Why do they reject the prophets and kill the prophets? I mean, there was no debate. In our context, we'd be like, I'm not so sure a prophet is a thing that exists. In their context, no debate about the fact that prophets exist. No debate about the fact that God speaks through people. But they ignored and rejected the prophets all the time. And why is that? Well, it's because self-righteous idolatry hardens hearts. Self-righteous idolatry hardens hearts. And what do I mean by that? Um, A few years ago, Mariah and I took a trip to Hawaii, and um, it was awesome. We went with a couple friends. And when we came back, we were sitting down at our table, and we were um, trying to figure out how much we'd spent. We were going through receipts, just trying to see, okay, how much did we actually spend? And we'd gone with friends and made communal purchases, so how much do they owe us or we owe them? And we sat down, and we kind of came up with two different numbers. I came up with one number, Mariah came up with another number. So we kind of started arguing about, back and forth about what, who was right. It became pretty clear after a couple minutes that Mariah probably had the right number, <laughs> and I had probably had the wrong number. And I don't know if it was my mood or what, what it was, but I decided in that moment, instead of, oh, it looks like she's probably right, I ground my heels and said, you know what, no, I'm usually the better one at math, and this is usually my thing. So... I didn't say that to her. This is all happening in my head. Um, and so I said, I said in my heart, you know, I'm right, and I'm going to work backwards from there. <laughs> I'm going to start with I'm probably correct, and I will find the facts after that. And so we kept bickering, and it got worse and worse until I said something. I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was something along the lines of, well, it just depends on how you think about that number, <laughs> as if there's multiple ways to think about <laughs> a number on a receipt. Um, In my need to be right, my assurance that I was right had hardened my heart to the truth. I had decided up front, I'm right, I'll work backwards from there. And so my heart had been hardened to reality, to truth. I started with I'm right because I have met my standard of whatever rightness is, and I'll move backwards from there. And this is what happens when... When our hearts are hardened, when we decide, when we're worshiping an idol of some sort of self-righteousness, self-rightness, we're worshiping that. Everything must bow down to the fact that I am right. I, I know truth. I have truth. And two things happen when you are worshiping an idol of self-righteousness. One, you become totally allergic to weakness. If anyone criticizes you or points out something in your life that isn't right, you just lose it. You can't stand it. You're just totally averse to it. You run from it. You lash out. And I can say that as someone who deals with that. I can't, I can't stand the idea of criticism and failure, and I, and I get so frustrated by it. And that'll happen. But the second thing that happens is that you will be totally unaware of the movement of the Holy Spirit. If your heart is hardened, if you're worshiping an idol of self-righteousness, you will be completely unaware of the movement of the Holy Spirit. Let me give a couple images that help me with this. Um, the first is that in the Bible, oftentimes when the Bible wants to talk about a righteous person, a good person, it'll use the image of a tree. Uh, psalm 1, my favorite psalm, says that the righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water. He bears fruit in season and his leaf does not wither. That is a righteous man. And, and it also will talk about a righteous person bearing fruit, good fruit. It'll also talk about them bearing bad fruit. And you can sometimes, bad people are trees too. But often the image of life and wholeness is a tree in the Bible. On the other hand, when the Bible describes someone who has turned their face away from God, turned away from him, and have kind of decided to live on their own self-righteousness, 
It uses the image of rock, of stone. It talks about your heart being hardened. That's what it says about Pharaoh when his heart is hardened in Exodus. It says his heart becomes like a rock, like a stone. It hardens. And the third image is in in Hebrew. I can just say this because I'm living and eating and breathing Hebrew all the time right now in my class. Um, The word ruach is the Hebrew word that gets translated spirit. Um, It also gets translated um, breath or wind. So if you can let me mash all these images up into one. If you were standing looking at a rock face, big rock face, and a hundred mile per hour wind was blasting the side of that rock face, you could maybe even see the wind, you could see things in the wind, but if you were looking at that rock face, it wouldn't budge an inch because a rock can't sense the wind. It can't be moved by the wind. Meanwhile, if you were outside at all yesterday, it was really windy here, um, you'd notice that even the slightest bit of breeze around a tree the leaves rustle, they pick up. They might have leaves these and sense things before you do, oftentimes. And so what's my point? My point is that God is not static. God is moving. I don't mean God is changing. God stays the same. He is everlasting. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But he is not static. He moves. In his spirit, it's like a wind. It's like a breath. It's, it's moving, and you have to be able to sense it. And a tree can sense it. A tree can pick up on the wind. It can pick up on breath. But a rock, it could be a hurricane, and the rock's not moving. And this whole book of Acts is about the wind and breath and spirit of God moving into the world. It's about from the point of Jesus' resurrection, a wind has picked up that will not stop. And those who are rocks, who have have turned away from God and hardened their heart, they don't sense it. And trees do. And this is how Israel, you know, through their history, resisted the prophets because of their self-righteous idolatry. They tended to believe that their commitment to the temple would save them. And over time, their hearts hardened in such a way that they were unaware that when God himself shows up as a man in in the flesh, they can't see him and they think this is a threat, we have to kill him. Because their hearts were hardened. That's a hurricane in your midst. If you're a tree, your roots are getting torn out. But if you're a rock, you have no idea that this is God standing in the flesh among, uh, among you. So are we aware of the movements of God? Is there enough space in your life that you could hear God, even if he was screaming in your face? Or are we so caught up in life, are we so caught up in busyness, that we'd have no idea when there is a tornado right in front of you? So the third thing we need eyes for is for the beauty of God. And I'll pick up in Acts seven fifty four through the end of the chapter. It says, Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Um, 
I think maybe possibly as Presbyterians, we read passages like this and we get a little nervous. I mean, how many friends, if you had a friend who came to you and said, Jake, I was raking in the yard yesterday and I looked up and I gazed into heaven and there was God sitting on the throne and Jesus was standing right next to him. I mean, how many of us would be like, yeah, right. <laughs> sure, can you show me where that is in, in the text or um, were you on some crazy painkillers or something? What was going on? Um, and maybe rightfully so, we, we are cautious with those visions. Um, but in the Bible, visions from God, they're by no means a, 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 to- a total experience that everyone's having visions on every street corner in the Bible. That's absolutely not happening. But they're not uncommon in Scripture. These visions of God are not uncommon. They're also rarely dreams or mental states. Um, usually when someone has a vision of God, it's not some subjective experience that they're having that's just happening in their mind's eye. That's, that's a minority report in Scripture. Usually what's happening, even though their language is struggling with it, you know, oftentimes the language of these visions, if you read Ezekiel or Revelation, you're like, okay, what's he talking about? I don't quite get this. It's having a hard time explaining what it's seeing. But often... What's happening is the author is trying to communicate something that they really saw. And I think the best way to think about this is like a a curtain being pulled back. That there is a reality happening right now um, that we are unaware of, that we don't see, that is behind a curtain. And there are moments when that curtain is pulled back and someone is given a view into how things are on the other side. And I think that's what's happening with Stephen right here. Because we're told that Stephen is said to have gazed into heaven. And there's Jesus and the Father on the throne. As he's about to die, Stephen sees the most beautiful image that you could imagine. This week, um, my community group was reading Gentle and Lowly in our community group, which is what most of us are doing right now, or have done. Um, I was struck by this line that Dane Ortland says. He says, Have we considered the loveliness of the heart of Christ? Perhaps beauty is not a category that comes naturally to mind when we think about Christ. Maybe we think of God and Christ in terms of truth, not beauty. But the whole reason we care about sound doctrine is for the sake of preserving God's beauty. Just as the whole reason we care about effective focal lenses on a camera is to capture with precision the beauty we photograph. What he's saying here is doctrine is necessary. It's good. I'm in seminary right now because I believe doctrine is so necessary and good. But it is a means to an end. Theology and doctrine are a means to the end of the beauty of Christ enthroned. It is to preserve, like, a, like we care about the lens in a camera, we care that it is accurate and we care that it is set right so that we can rightly see the beauty and the glory of Jesus and the Father. It is a means to an end. And if theology and doctrine is not moving you to a deeper love of God, it at best is distracting you, and at worst it might be killing you. And when, Because when pushed into the deepest and darkest moment of his life, being stoned to death by his countrymen, Stephen does not look up and see his systematic theology textbook, or he does not look up and see his right thinking. He doesn't look up and see the Westminster Confession of Faith. He looks up and he sees Jesus in God, in heaven, on the throne. That's what he sees in his darkest moment. He's, in other words, Stephen did not die because he had the best logical arguments that he knew. 
And we know he had plenty of them. It says that in the passage we read. They couldn't withstand the teaching that he had. But what he dies for is God sitting on the throne and Jesus standing next to him. That is the crux of his life. That is everything to him, is the beauty of God enthroned. And many of us here, and I can say this because this is true for me, are sitting here and we think, uh, when we th- we're following Christ because we think he's true. And that's okay. That's, he has to be true. We need, he is the truth. That's what he says. But not because we think he's beautiful. He sets our minds at rest, but he doesn't make your heart sing. You agree with Christian values and morals, and you like where Jesus gets you, ultimately. Like, yeah, Jesus is a means to the end of a good life and treating people well, but I don't actually care about Jesus. I don't think he's beautiful. I don't think he's lovely. And yes, God wants our minds. God wants us to have mental rest in him. He is the way and the truth. But what he really wants is your heart. And to have your heart, his presence has to excite you. It has to thrill you. When Jesus is in the room, you have to just be lit up. You need to be irresistibly drawn to him. You have to want Christ, not just want the things around Christ. So do we have the eyes for that? Do we have the eyes for the beauty of Christ? Is all of our Bible study and our doctrine as good and wonderful and necessary as it is? Is it directing our gaze to the beauty of Jesus standing by his Father on the throne? So as I wrap this up, every human needs to worship something. Every human does worship something. Everyone in this room is an idolater. And religious people are most in danger of worshiping the process of worshiping God. Something about the process of worshiping God and religion. That's what we're most drawn to. That's the easiest thing for us to slide into. But that makes us blind to the movements of God's spirit. And what we need is to gaze on the beauty of Jesus. But you might say, Jake, this is great. I want those eyes. I need those eyes. How do I get those eyes? And I should say, just as I was reading this, um, it occurred to me that how amazing... (laughs) There is so much hope for us. It says in here, this was not part of my sermon, but the people lay their cloaks down at the feet of a man named Saul. Most of the rest of this book is about Saul. His heart was very hard to the point that he led this mob. And yet, the wind picks up and he feels it and he moves with it. There is hope for anybody, no matter how hard your heart is. But how do we get those eyes? Before you have the eyes to see idols and movement and beauty, you have to have eyes for the cross. You have to have have eyes for Jesus on the cross because the cross is the moment in which God deals with sin, where he puts to death sin. Do you want to be able to see idols? Do you want to have the eyes for idols? Look to the cross. Idols demand things from you. They take from you. But on the cross, Jesus gives his life. He surrenders his life for those that he loves. Do you want to have the eyes to see the movement of God? Look to the cross. God's movement on the cross is from the throne of heaven to carrying a cross outside of a city to be hung on it. That's the movement of the cross. It's from throne to cross. That's the pattern of God's movement. Do you want to have eyes to see the beauty of God? There's nothing more beautiful than love. And what Jesus tells us in his own words is that greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
The cross is beauty poured out as love. So how do you develop the eyes to see? Look to the cross. The deepest heart of Christ is on the cross. It's displayed on the cross. So how do you look to the cross daily? How do you, when you wake up every morning, do you orient your gaze to the cross so that you can see idols, so that you can see the movement of God, and so that you can see the beauty of God? What are the disciplines, the part of your rhythms that every day point you to look to the cross and so that you can have new eyes and a new life, so that the world can be colored, so you can peer behind the curtain and you can see how things really are, what this new life, this life that God has graciously given us, what that life is like. How are you looking to the cross? Because only God hanging on a cross, dying for his friends, will bring new life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have offered not a set of principles by which we can live and do good things, but you have offered a new kind of life to us. And that new kind of life, it involves eyes, Lord, and those eyes, we need those eyes to see life as it is, life as it could be, and life as it is happening. And God, I pray that you would orient our gaze to the cross, that we would see you hanging on the cross and out of that would pour new life for us and that suddenly life would go from black and white to color because we have seen you on the cross. Lord Jesus, we pray for your grace. We thank you for your mercy and we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.